Welcome to Bedtime Stories. I'm Lori Mack. Tonight we will be enjoying Stuart Little by E.B. White, chapters 7, 8, and 9. Chapter 7, The Sailboat Race. When the people in Central Park learned that one of the toy sailboats was being steered by a mouse in a sailor suit, they all came running. Soon the shores of the pond were so crowded that a policeman was sent from headquarters to announce that everybody would have to stop pushing. But nobody did. People in New York liked to push each other. The most excited person of all was the boy who owned the Lillian B. Womrath. He was a fat, sulky boy of 12 named Leroy. He wore a blue serge suit and a white necktie stained with orange juice. Come back here, he called to Stuart. Come back here and get on my boat. I want you to steer my boat. I will pay you $5 a week and you can have every Thursday afternoon off and a radio in your room. Oh, I thank you for your offer, replied Stuart, but I'm happy aboard the Wasp, happier than I have ever been before in all my life. And with that, he spun the wheel over smartly and headed his schooner down toward the starting line, where Leroy was turning his boat around by poking it with a long stick, ready for the start of the race. I'll be the referee, said a man in a bright green suit. Is the wasp ready? Ready, sir, shouted Stuart, touching his hat. Is the Lillian B. Walmrath ready? asked the referee. Sure, I'm ready, said Leroy. To the north end of the pond and back again, shouted the referee. On your mark, get set, go! Go, cried the people along the shore. Go, cried the owner of the wasp. Go, yelled the policeman. And away went the two boats for the north end of the pond, while the seagulls wheeled and cried overhead, and the taxicabs tooted and honked from 72nd Street, and the west wind, which had come halfway across America to get to Central Park, sang and whistled in the rigging and blew spray across the decks, stinging Stuart's cheeks with tiny fragments of flying peanut shell tossed up from the foamy deep. This is the life for me, Stuart murmured to himself. What a ship, what a day, what a race. Before the two boats had gone many feet, however, an accident happened on shore. The people were pushing each other harder and harder in their eagerness to see the sport, and although they really didn't mean to, they pushed the policeman so hard, they pushed him right off the concrete wall and into the pond. He hit the water in a seating position and got wet clear up to the third button of his jacket. He was soaked. This particular policeman was not only a big heavy man, but he had just eaten a big heavy meal and the wave he made went curling outward, cresting and billowing, upsetting all manner of small craft and causing every owner of a boat on the pond to scream with delight and consternation. When Stuart saw the great wave approaching, he jumped for the rigging, but he was too late. Towering above the wasp like a mountain, the wave came crashing and piling along the deck, caught Stuart up, and swept him over the side 
and into the water where everybody supposed he would drown. Well, Stuart had no intention of drowning. He kicked hard with his feet and thrashed hard with his tail. And in a minute or two, he climbed back aboard the schooner, cold and wet, but quite unharmed. As he took his place at the helm, he could hear people cheering for him and calling, At a mouse, Stuart! At a mouse! He looked over and saw the wave had capsized the Lillian B. Womrath, but that she had righted herself and was sailing on her course close by. And she stayed close alongside till both boats reached the north end of the pond. Here, Stuart put the wasp about, and Leroy turned the Lillian around with his stick, and away the two boats went for the finish line. This race isn't over yet, thought Stuart. The first warning he had that there was trouble ahead came when he glanced into the wasp's cabin and observed that the barometer had fallen sharply. Well, that can only mean one thing at sea, dirty weather. Suddenly, a dark cloud swept across the sun, blotting it out and leaving the earth in shadow. Stuart shivered in his wet clothes. He turned up his sailor blouse closer around his neck, and when he spied the wasp's owner among the crowd on shore, he waved his hat and called out, Dirty weather ahead, sir. Wind backing into the southwest. Seas confused. Glass falling. Never mind the weather, cried the owner. Watch out for flotsam dead ahead. Stuart peered ahead into the gathering storm, but saw nothing except gray waves with white crests. The world seemed cold and ominous. Stuart glanced behind him. There came the sloop, boiling along fast, rolling up a bow wave and gaining steadily. Look out, Stuart! Look out where you're going! Stuart strained his eyes, and suddenly, dead ahead, right in the path of the wasp, he saw an enormous paper bag looming up on the surface of the pond. The bag was empty and riding high, its open end gaping wide like the mouth of a cave. Stuart spun the wheel over, but it was too late. The wasp drove her bowsprit right into the bag, and with a fearful whoosh, the schooner slowed down and came up into the wind with all sails flapping. Just at this moment, Stuart heard a splintering crash, saw the bow of the Lillian plow through his rigging, and felt the whole ship tremble from stem to stern with the force of the collision. A collision! shouted the crowd on shore. In a jiffy, the two boats were in a terrible tangle. Little boys on shore screamed and danced up and down. Meanwhile, the paper bag sprang a leak and began to fill. The wasp couldn't move because of the bag. The Lillian B. Womrath couldn't move because her nose was stuck in the wasp's rigging. Waving his arms, Stuart ran forward and fired off his gun. Then he heard, above the other voices on shore, the, owner, the voice of the owner of the wasp yelling directions and telling him what to do. Stuart! Stuart! Down jib! Down staysail! Stuart jumped for the halyards and the jib and the foresail 
and the four-day sail came rippling down. Cut away all paper bags, roared the owner. Stuart whipped out his pocket knife and slashed away bravely at the soggy bag until he had the deck cleared. Now back your foresail and give her a full, screamed the owner of the wasp. Stuart grabbed the foresail boom and pulled with all his might, and slowly the schooner paid off and began to gather headway. And as she peeled over to the breeze, she rolled a rail out from under the Lillian's nose, shook herself free, and stood away to the southward. A loud cheer went up from the bank. Stuart sprang to the wheel and answered it. And then he looked back, and to his great joy, he perceived that the Lillian had gone off in a wild direction and was yawing all over the pond. Straight and true sailed the wasp, with Stuart at the helm. After she had crossed the finish line, Stuart brought her alongside the wall and was taken ashore and highly praised for his fine seamanship and daring. The owner was delighted and said that it was the happiest day of his life. He introduced himself to Stuart, said that in a private life he was Dr. Paul Carey, a surgeon dentist. He said model boats were his hobby and that he would be delighted to have Stuart take command of his vessel at any time. Everybody shook hands with Stuart. Everybody, that is, except the policeman who was too wet and mad to shake hands with a mouse. When Stuart got home that night, his brother George asked him where he had been all day. Ah, just knocking around town, replied Stuart. Chapter 8. Margalo. Because he was so small, Stuart was often hard to find around the house. His father and his mother and his brother George seldom could locate him by looking for him. Usually, they had to call him. And the house often echoed with cries of, Stuart! Stuart! You would come into a room and he might be curled up in a chair, but you wouldn't see him. Mr. Little was in constant fear of losing him and never finding him again. He even made him a tiny red cap, such as hunters wear, so that he would be easier to see. One day, when he was seven years old, Stuart was in the kitchen watching his mother make tapioca pudding. He was feeling hungry, and when Mrs. Little opened the door of the electric refrigerator to get something, Stuart slipped inside to see if he could find a piece of cheese. He supposed, of course, his mother had seen him, and when the door swung shut and he realized he was locked in, it surprised him greatly. Help, he called. It's dark in here. It's cold in this refrigerator. Help, let me out. I'm getting colder by the minute. But his voice was not strong enough to penetrate the thick wall. In the darkness, he stumbled and fell into a saucer of prunes. The juice was cold. Stuart shivered and his teeth chattered together. It wasn't until half an hour later that Mrs. Little again opened the door and found him standing on a butter plate, beating his arms together to try to keep warm and blowing on his hands and hopping up and down. Mercy, she cried. Stuart, my poor little boy. How about a, a nip of brandy, said Stuart. I'm chilled to the bone. 
but his mother made him some hot broth instead and put him to bed in his cigarette box with a doll's hot water bottle against his feet. Even so, Stuart caught a bad cold, and this turned into bronchitis, and Stuart had to stay in bed for almost two weeks. During his illness, the other members of the family were extremely kind to Stuart. Mrs. Little played tic-tac-toe with him, George made him a soap bubble pipe and a bow and arrow, Mr. Little made him a pair of ice skates out of two paper clips. One cold afternoon, Mrs. Little was shaking her dust cloth out of the window when she noticed a small bird lying on the windowsill, apparently dead. She brought it in and put it near the radiator, and in a short while it fluttered its wings and opened its eyes. It was a pretty little hen bird, brown with a streak of yellow on her breast. The Littles didn't agree on what kind of bird she was. She's a wall-eyed vireo, said George scientifically. I think she's more like a young wren, said Mr. Little. Anyway, they fixed a place for her in the living room and fed her and gave her a cup of water, and soon she felt much better and went hopping around the house, examining everything with the greatest care and interest. Presently, she hopped upstairs and on to Stuart's room, where he was lying in bed. Hello, said Stuart. Who are you? Where did you come from? My name is Margalow, said the bird softly in a musical voice. I come from the fields once tall with wheat, from pastures deep in fern and thistle. I come from vales of meadow sweet, and I love to whistle. Stuart sat bolt upright in bed. Say that again, he said. Oh, I can't, replied Margolo. I have a sore throat. Mm, so have I, said Stuart. I've got bronchitis. You better not get too near me. You might catch it. I'll stay right here by the door, said Margolo. You can use some of my gargle if you want to, said Stuart. And there are some nose drops and I have plenty of Kleenex. Oh, thank you very much. You are very kind, replied the bird. Did they take your temperature? asked Stuart who was beginning to be genuinely worried about his new friend's health. No, said Margolo, but I think it will be necessary. Well, we better make sure, said Stuart, because I would hate to have anything happen to you. Here, and he tossed her the thermometer. Margolo put it under her tongue, and she and Stuart sat very still for three minutes. And then she took it out and looked at it, turning it slowly and carefully. Oh, normal she announced. Stuart felt his heart leap for gladness. It seemed to him that he had never seen any creature so beautiful as this tiny bird, and he already loved her. I hope, he remarked, that my parents have fixed you up with a decent place to sleep. Oh, yes, Margolo replied. I'm going to sleep in the Boston Fern on the bookshelf in the living room. It's a nice place for a city location. And now, if you'll excuse me, I think I shall go to bed. I, I see it's getting dark outside, and I always go to bed at sundown. Good night, sir. Oh, please don't call me sir, cried Stuart. Call me Stuart. Very well, said the bird. Good night, Stuart. And she hopped off with light, bouncing steps. Good night, Margolo, called Stuart. See you in the morning. Stuart settled back under the bedclothes again. There's a mighty fine bird, he whispered, and sighed a tender sigh. When Mrs. Little came in, later, 
to tuck Stuart in for the night and hear his prayers, Stuart asked her if she thought the bird would be quite safe sleeping down in the living room. Oh, quite safe, my dear, she replied. Well, what about the cat Snowbell? asked Stuart sternly. Oh, Snowbell won't touch the bird, his mother said. You go to sleep and forget all about it. Mrs. Little opened the window and turned out the light. Stuart closed his eyes and lay there in the dark, but he couldn't seem to go to sleep. He tossed and turned, and the bedclothes got all rumpled up. He kept thinking about the bird downstairs asleep in the fern. He kept thinking about Snowbell and the way Snowbell's eyes gleamed. And Finally, unable to take it any longer, he switched on the light. There's just something in me that doesn't trust a cat, he muttered. I can't sleep knowing that Margolo is in danger. Pushing the covers back, Stuart climbed out of bed. He put on his wrapper and slippers. Taking his bow and arrow and his flashlight, he tiptoed out into the hall. Everybody had gone to bed and the house was dark. Stuart found his way to the stairs and descended slowly and cautiously into the living room making no noise. His throat hurt him, and he felt a bit dizzy. Oh, sick as I am, he said to himself, this has still got to be done. Being careful not to make a sound, he stole across to the lamp by the bookshelf, shinnied up the cord, and climbed out onto the shelf. There was a faint, faint ray of light from the street lamp outside and Stuart could dimly see Margolo asleep in the fern, her head tucked under her wing. Sleep dwell upon thine eyes, peace in thy breast, he whispered, repeating a speech he had heard in the movies. Then he hid behind a candlestick and waited, listening and watching. For half an hour he saw nothing, heard nothing, but the faint ruffle of Margolo's wings when she stirred in dream. The clock struck ten, loudly, and before the sound of the last stroke had died away, Stuart saw two gleaming yellow eyes peering out from behind the sofa. So, thought Stuart, I guess there's going to be something doing after all. He reached for his bow and arrow. The eyes came nearer. Stuart was frightened, but he was a brave mouse, even when he had a sore throat. He placed the arrow against the cord of the bow and waited. Snowbell crept softly toward the bookshelf and climbed noiselessly up onto the chair within easy reach of the Boston firm where, where Margolo was asleep. Then he crouched, ready to spring. His tail waved back and forth. His eyes gleamed bright. Stuart decided that time had come. He stepped out from behind the candlestick, knelt down, bent his bow, and took careful aim at Snowbell's left ear, which was the nearest to him. This is the finest thing I have ever done, thought Stuart, and he shot the arrow straight into the cat's ear. Snowbell squealed with pain and jumped down and ran off toward the kitchen. A direct hit, said Stuart. Thank heaven. Well, there's a good night's work done. He threw a kiss toward Margolo's sleeping form.
It was a tired little mouse that crawled into bed a few minutes later. Tired, but ready for sleep at last. Chapter 9. A Narrow Escape Margalo liked it so well at the Littles' house, she decided to stay for a while instead of returning to the open country. She and Stuart became fast friends, and as the days passed, it seemed to Stuart that she grew more and more beautiful. He hoped she would never go away from him. One day, when Stuart had recovered from bronchitis, he took his new skates and put on his ski pants and went out to look for an ice pond. He didn't get far. The minute he stepped out onto the street, he saw an Irish terrier, so he had to shinny up an iron gate and jump into a garbage can where he hid in a grove of celery. While he was there, waiting for the dog to go away, a garbage truck from the Department of Sanitation drove up to the curb and two men picked up the can. Stuart felt himself being hoisted high in the air. He peered over the side and saw that in another instant he and everything in the can would be dumped into the big truck. Oh my gosh, if I jump now I'll kill myself, thought Stuart. So he ducked back into the can and waited. The men threw the can with a loud bump into the truck where another man grabbed it, turned it upside down and shook everything out. Stuart landed on his head, buried two feet deep in wet, slippery garbage. All around him was garbage, smelling strong. Under him, over him, on all sides of him, garbage. Just an enormous world of garbage and trash and smell. Oh, it was a messy spot to be in. He had egg on his trousers, butter on his cap, gravy on his shirt orange pulp in his ear, and banana peel was wrapped around his waist. Still hanging onto his skates, Stuart tried to make his way up to the surface of the garbage, but the footing was bad. He climbed a pile of coffee grounds, but near the top, the grounds gave way under him, and he slid down and landed in a pool of leftover rice pudding. I bet I'm going to be sick at my stomach before I get out of this said Stuart. He was anxious to work his way up to the top of the pile because he was afraid of being squashed by the next can load of garbage. When at last he did succeed in getting to the surface, tired and smelly, he observed that the truck was not making any more collections but was rumbling rapidly along. Stuart glanced up at the sun. We're going east, he said to himself. I wonder what that means. There was no way for him to get out of the truck. The sides were too high. He just had to wait. When the truck arrived at the East River, which borders New York City on the east, and which is a rather dirty but useful river, the driver drove out onto the pier, backed up to a garbage scow, and dumped his load. Stewart went crashing and slithering along with everything else and hit his head so hard he fainted and lay quite still, as though he was dead. He lay that way for almost an hour, and when he recovered his senses, he looked about him and saw nothing but water. The scow was being towed out to sea. 
Well, thought Stuart, this is about the worst thing that could happen to anybody. I guess this will be my last ride in this world. For he knew that the garbage would be towed 20 miles out and dumped into the Atlantic Ocean. I guess there's nothing I can do about it, he thought hopelessly. I'll just have to sit here bravely and die like a man. But I wish I didn't have to die with egg on my pants and butter in my cap and gravy on my shirt and orange pulp in my ear and banana peel wrapped around my middle. The thought of death made Stuart, made Stuart sad and he began to think of his home and of his father and mother and brother and of Margolot and Snowbell and of how he loved them all, well, all but Snowbell, <laughs> and of what a pleasant place his home was, especially in the early morning with the light just coming in through the curtains and the household stirring and waking. The tears came into his eyes when he realized that he would never see them again. He was still sobbing when a small voice behind him whispered, Stuart. <gasps> he looked around through his tears, and there, sitting on a Brussels sprout, was Margalow. <gasps> Margalow, cried Stuart, how did you get here? Well, said the bird, I was looking out the window this morning when you left home, and I happened to see you get dumped into that garbage truck, so I flew out the window and followed the truck, thinking that you might need my help. Oh, I have never been so glad to see anybody in all my life, said Stuart. But how are you going to help me? I think that if you'll hang on to my feet, said Margolot, I can fly ashore with you. It's worth trying anyway. How much do you weigh? Three ounces and a half, said Stuart. With your clothes on, asked Margot. Margolot? Certainly, replied Stuart modestly. Well, then I believe I can carry you all right. Oh, suppose I get dizzy, said Stuart. Just don't look down, replied Margolo. Then you won't get dizzy. Well, suppose I get sick to my stomach. Well, you'll just have to be sick, the bird replied. Anything is better than dead. Yeah, that's true, Stuart agreed. Well, hang on then. We may as well get started. Stuart tucked his skates into his shirt, stepped gingerly onto a tuft of lettuce, and took a firm grip on Margolo's ankles. Already, he cried. With a flutter of wings, Margolo rose into the sky, carrying Stuart along, and together they flew out over the ocean and headed toward home. Pew, said Margolo when they were high in the air. You smell awful, Stuart. Oh, I know I do, he replied gloomily. I hope it isn't making you feel bad. Oh, I can hardly breathe, she answered and my heart is pounding in my breast. <sighs> Isn't there something you could do to, or drop to make yourself lighter? Well, I could drop these ice skates, said Stuart. Oh, goodness me, the little bird cried. I didn't know you had ice skates hidden in your shirt. Toss those things away quickly or we will both come down in the ocean and perish. Stuart threw his skates away and watched them fall down, down, till they disappeared in the gray waves below. Oh, that's better, said Margolot. Now we're all right. I can already see the towers and chimneys of New York. Fifteen minutes later, 
In they flew through the open window of the Littles' living room and landed in the Boston fern. Mrs. Little, who had left the window up when she missed Margalow, was glad to see them back, for she was beginning to worry. When she heard what had happened and how, how near she had come to losing her son, she took Stuart in her hand, even though his clothes smelled nasty, and she kissed him. Then she sent him upstairs to take a bath and sent George out to take Stuart's clothes to the cleaner. What was it like? out there in the Atlantic Ocean, inquired Mr. Little, who had never been that far away from home. So Stuart and Margalow told all about the ocean, and the gray waves curling with white crests, and the gulls in the sky, and the channel buoys, and the ships, and the tugs, and the wind making a sound in your ears. Mr. Little sighed and said that someday he hoped to get away from business long enough to see all those fine things. Everyone thanked Margalow for saving Stuart's life, and at supper time, Mrs. Little presented her with a tiny cake, which had seeds sprinkled on top. That's all for tonight. Come back next time when we'll read three more chapters of this wonderful book. Good night.